Tom's it might make a great pickup line. I mean, who knows? <laughs> have you heard my podcast? <laughs> hey, baby, it's all about international relations and American foreign policy uh, from a global <laughs> perspective. Oh my god, it, it reminds me of one of the United Nations speak up lines they used to like read on. Oh internet. god, those are fantastic. For example, oh my god, it's like. I want to put my ballistic missiles in your country, or I want, I want, I want to moderate your caucus or something. <laughs> hey, girl, can you shake Djibouti for me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I motion to invade Djibouti with the aid of Greece. <laughs> <laughs> That's nasty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this project is to make American foreign policy easier to understand for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are a few of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Hello. Matthew Spencer Cosio. Good morning. And Tom's Ratfelders, formerly of the pseudonym Daniel Storm. Hello, everyone. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. This episode is all about trade, specifically the tenuous trade relationship that has developed from the current administration's policies. No one can deny the negative impacts that globalization has had on some sectors of the American economy, as increasingly interconnected trade has made it far easier and cheaper to import things like steel and aluminum, many American jobs have been lost. In response, the administration has taken a hard-line approach to negotiating trade policies. The art of this deal has been to impose billions of dollars in tariffs on adversarial nations like China, and even friendly nations like Canada and those of the European Union. In response, these nations have imposed their own trade tariffs, dramatically increasing the possibility of a trade war. Still, this tactic has started new discussions about renegotiating old deals. So, is this a bold new strategy for trade talks, or just another erratic policy from an administration struggling for a big win? Who wants to start? Well, I think that you got to say, as in foreign policy, as in all things... Trump is using economics to score political points in the domestic realm. He's not using it really to score points in an economic realm, which is ironic because everyone thought, oh, well, when I say everyone, I mean all the Trump supporters thought he's going to be fantastic because he ran a business. He's going to know how economics works. Well, we've shown that he doesn't know what an actual uh, trade deficit is. He has a very weak understanding of that, and he has a very weak understanding of how capitalist international uh, markets work. And when I say capitalist, I should say well-regulated capitalism, but it's it's to score political points, very much so. And it's damaging the country because one of the key things for a capitalist international market is free trade and to some extent a free flow of labor. And We'll get more into the free flow of labor a little bit later, but for the free trade aspect of it, one of the key fundamentals of modern uh, international trade is do what you do best, trade for the rest. So in terms of comparative advantage, 
if one country is specialized at making something, a different country is specialized at making something else, they should each make that thing they're specialized at making and then trade with each other. And overall, more things get built and prices go down. Everyone benefits. It's a positive sum game. And when you start canceling those economic agreements to score political points, you're going to lose those benefits. And that's kind of what happened. what's happening. Absolutely. Um, I think it's also important that we start with um, maybe to preface this uh, trade deficit. What is a trade deficit? I'd like to just chuck out the dictionary definition and then we can maybe compare that to perhaps a economist definition of it. But a trade deficit just means, you know, when you are bringing in less, you're, you're trading out less than you're bringing in. Your imports exceed your exports. And that is something that you would assume actually happens when you're uh, a strong consumer. So when you're a consumer country, you just happen to buy more. So for example, you take more from China than you sell to China. That's a trade deficit. So the idea of being opposed to a trade deficit, um, I mean, it just means that you're, you know, if you don't like it, it just means you're not as successful as selling your goods on the global market. But that's not really a metric to study economic success. And so to me, I find it kind of paradoxical that we can have a, um, a government right now that likes to say, oh, look at the numbers. The unemployment is down. Everything is great. If everything's great, why do we need to, you know, why do we need to fix something that's not broke? Like, if things are great, then things can't be broken. If it's not broken, don't fix it. So what are Trump's main grievances? If things are great, why do we need to trade war? Yeah, it's it's uh, perplexing, and I, I don't think there is very much logic behind it. And I think if we start trying to find logic in it, we're kind of going to get lost in a never ending. And that's well. why I yeah. I know like we want to avoid talking domestic politics, but unfortunately, I think a lot of us are kind of uh, have a hunch that this is all domestic politics playing out, and you know. It feels as if, like you're saying, you know, this isn't really about economic advantage as opposed to a political advantage. Then it feels like we just shouldn't even talk about economics at all. We should just talk about, you know, the midterms. But we don't want to talk about the midterms. We should really just talk about whether or not these actions are going to help or not. See, and I think the domestic aspect is something that's actually going to come back to hurt him in the long run from the strategy. I mean, this... These trade tariffs lead him wide open to counter tariffs on things that his base cares about. I mean, all the tariffs going on with steel, aluminum, all of the things that are impacting these core communities in, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, all of these um, these communities that are part of his core base. So these other countries can impose these tariffs and they actually they don't have an incentive to work anymore to make this trade possible. I mean, he's. Trump is very unpopular with much of the country and has been combative with the very nations that he wants to trade with, you know, like Canada, Mexico, with the European Union. They don't particularly like him, so all they have to do is just wait him out. I mean, essentially, it's it's in it's in their interest for him to fail on these deals and to be replaced with someone who values the alliances. And all they have to do, and we've seen this with nations like China, is they target their sanctions specifically to Trump's base as a way to try to get uh, enough people upset with him to push him out of office and to get someone who's actually 
going to make a trade deal that can actually benefit both sides instead of a trade deal that's only going to try to benefit one side. It, it, it's funny. This just reminds me of a discussion I had with a professor over a year ago when he told me that China will be the arbiter of international free trade in the future. They will <laughs> not only that, they'll, 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 they'll be the defenders of international um, liberal economics in general. So it's amusing to me to think that this is just such a, another example of, you know, the U.S. has created this economic standard, free trade, reduce barriers to trade. We produced the Washington Consensus. We, we, we crafted up the WTO as an excellent institution. And, and I think that the WTO's strength is being seen here, um, maybe not necessarily as a standalone institution, but as something that has given legitimacy to the assembly of nations opposed to uh, Trump's trade war. So it's interesting that we produce the this amazing institution, the World Trade Organization. A lot of people are opposed to it, a lot of people are for it, but right now what we're seeing is littler countries being negatively impacted by the trade war or the potential trade war, I mean, including China as the biggest country there, um, are using this institution that we Americans made to try and stop us from these tariffs, from imposing these tariffs. Well, I'd like to challenge you on the idea that the World Trade Organization is actually functioning correctly or strong um, in the absence of the United States uh, pushing it as well, because I think we're seeing the United States take a lot of unilateral action, and there's really not much happening to stop it from doing that. And you're right that like China is picking up the mantle, but China's only doing that because the United States put it down. So we saw this again in the environmental realm, right? China didn't care at all about taking up leadership on environmental issues until Trump came into office and he said, we're going to walk out of this Paris, Cli uh, Paris climate agreement. And China was right there. And they were, we will, we will pick this up. We're going to be the ones to push this forward because we're the modern leaders. And that's kind of what's happening on free trade as well. Um, I will say it's to go back a little bit what uh, Nick was talking about. It's incredibly interesting to me to watch these countries like uh, like China and um, obviously the European Union, not a single country, but the European Union in general make these trade tariffs, like Nick said, specifically targeted at farmers or at people who voted for Trump. And that's incredible. I don't think that's going to hurt Trump then as much as. Well, no, I, I don't. I, I'm not sure it will hurt uh, Trump because he's able to put into play. Uh, basically, uh, he's able to give the farmers back money just by yeah. wantonly giving them money. Two, but yeah, two two facts of that. Obviously, he's giving them subsidies, so he's basically subsidizing this alternate economic reality that he's trying to produce. So he's able to subsid subsidize his little mission, which is you know this trade war thing. And secondly, I mean, he has an information monopoly on his ardent supporters. So because of that, he he can kind of get away with a lot more than people might think. So I don't think, I mean, I would I would hope that perhaps China's economic pressure might make some swing voters think twice about Trump. But I just don't know. I, I think I, I personally would have to look at the polls and see if in these battleground territories it's going to work. I think well, I would like. I think I would uh, subscribe to the 
opinion, but actually Steven said before that uh, it's it's basically say about domestic politics, and I think uh, it kind of works pretty well currently, especially because uh, recently I don't know if you heard about it, but there were talks in Washington between the European Commission and uh, Trump. And basically, they agreed uh, to import United States soybeans a lot more and also uh, basically uh, freeze the current tariffs in place. So basically, uh, Trump can easily uh, sell this thing as foreign policy policy success. And if he sees that something is working, then I think that uh, there shouldn't be a lot of incentives for him to stop in this case. So, Tongs, do you think that this, um, his tariff activities are effective? At least, do they seem to be getting him what he wants? Uh, I mean, that's a two-part question, I guess. Yeah, well, it's like... yeah well, well, basically, the question is uh, what he wants, right? So, if, if we presume that he wants uh, domestic, like domestic political points, then definitely he gets what he wants. But if he wants, I don't know, like to develop United States economy in long term and uh, ensure the proper functioning of liberal world, or- world order, which definitely for him is in second place, uh, then I think that um, no, I mean, like tariffs are not, I think they are not the long term solution in the nowadays world anyways, but Trump has short term thinking anyway, so I don't think he cares about it. And I know that there's been a lot of talk uh, in economists right now that they're predicting that there's going to be another economic recession in 2020 because of a lot of these economic policies. So like Tomes is saying, it's very short term policy. And I'd like to reiterate that it, it all depends on who the viewer is and who you're trying to sell this to. So anyone that's listening to this, when you think of economics, what you think about is, oh, well, free trade, it's uh, making money, yada, yada, yada. But Free trade and economics is just as much a political weapon and an international trade weapon as anything, and it's not a bad thing per se. I will be the first one to say that I believe that economics should be a tool of state power um, exercised across the world. <laughs> that being said, I think it needs to be used wisely, and I think it needs to be used um, sparingly so that it doesn't go away. Yeah, obviously, tariffs are supposed to be used in a very selective manner. I mean, it's just like a boycott, if you would. So when you boycott something, like maybe you're Cesar Chavez, you just boycott just grapes, you know, as opposed to maybe, I don't know, um, another type of boycott where you simply boycott 500 things and no one knows what to do. So if you're using tariffs in a very targeted way, like there's a small country somewhere around the world you know, and it doesn't have a huge GDP, but it's doing something like crimes against humanity, but it's also not like at war, you know, you're not quite sure what you should do, you don't want to like go in, put boots on the ground, you know, put a tariff here or there just to put some pressure on their government. But I mean, if you're doing tariffs on everybody, including your friends, it's going to probably lose it, 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 its value over the long run. Yeah, and I think that, I mean... So much of trade discussions and trade relationships is about trust. It is about, you know, that more than just the economic relationship, it is about the political, the cultural, the social relationship. And I do feel like just shooting first with tariffs before actually trying to have reasonable trade discussions, even with your allies, 
especially just starts the whole conversation off on a bad foot. I mean, it's, you're not starting off in, you know, sort of a positive, uh, cooperative manner when you're doing that. And so that's, that's why I wonder if that, you know, shoot first, have discussions later tactic would even be useful if it was done by someone who is a popular, competent president who was thinking long term, rather than someone who's just looking for the short term gain. You need to ask questions first, of course, because if you're terrorist first, questions later, the first thing I'm going to say is, what the hell is this terror for? What's the problem in the first place? I mean, if I open my door because my neighbor knocked on my door and he punched me in the face, <laughs> and I don't, I, I don't even know my neighbor very well, I've been like, well, nice to meet you. <laughs> and then, like, maybe, like, a week later he says, that was for not mowing your lawn. And then or, I go, oh, well. Or, or worse, that he's one of your good friends and does that, and you're like, dude, what? I thought we were friends. Why are you doing this to me? Yeah, yeah, seriously. It's like uh, uh, that John Mulaney special. I mean, if you're going to put the horse in the hospital, let it run around and start stomping on everything. We need to explain why you unleashed a horse into the hospital. Well, that may be a little controversial here because I think actually, if put in the proper place, might be effective because what you are doing is – and we're saying that we're you know, shooting first, asking questions later, but there's a very – there's not a significant time gap between what you're actually doing and what you're saying. They're basically happening simultaneously, and that's kind of the problem. But that also gives you the initiative to begin moving on what you want to, as as we're doing, unilaterally. And on any specific single issue that you work on, when you have that initiative, when you have that uh, willingness to act by yourself, you generally can accomplish what you want uh, fairly quickly. Uh, you're going to provoke international ire, but if you can stand that international ire, you're going to win. I think that the problem here is that <laughs> you're trying this singular tactic which will work on a singular issue on a broad spectrum of issues, and each one of them is drawing international ire and condemnation. If we were just to have put trade tariffs on China, or just to have decided to provoke our allies on the North American continent or just to provoke our allies on the European continent, you know what? Maybe one of those would have worked. Who knows? But you're doing every single one at the same time. It's it's ludicrous. Even from a perspective of if you thought this plan could work, you're still not doing it right. <laughs> Gosh, you know, I mean... I think maybe it's important then to look at least what are the grievances specifically that is leading to this. Um, it sounds like what I've been hearing, the narrative I've been hearing is it all started with steel. And it sounded like perhaps because steel jobs and steel factories are in a lot of very critical electoral regions um, in some notable battleground states, that might matter uh, for the midterms. It might matter a lot more in 2020. Um, Trump had a rally that I heard a bit of a tidbit of, and he claimed that seven new uh, plants are going to be opening up, or maybe what he meant to say was seven plants were going to reopen. I'm not sure on the exact details, but he, he mentioned that essentially there was going to be growth of the American steel industry because of his tariffs, and this really excited his base radically. Um, so much so that they kind of forgave him for, 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 uh, complimenting Putin in the very same rally. So uh, it, it sounds like, you know, 
looking at the domestic situation is really important. Perhaps that's why he doesn't necessarily need to give a lot of advance warning to our to our very allies about this is this terrorist going to happen because he needs to surprise those allies and that kind of excites his base perhaps. Well, not, uh, not to uh, not to go off on a tangent, but I actually know the entire history of that uh, steel issue because I was I, the two places I've been working in. We actually had to deal with both of those. Um, so what happened with the steel was actually China was growing. They're building all the steel over in China because they're growing at a 10% rate of economic growth. When China starts to grow down from 10 to 8%, it doesn't sound like a huge amount, but that's a massive amount of steel that they're not now not using. So they started dumping the steel on the international market, which is, in fact, a trade violation. So, I mean, to, to an extent, Trump had a point. And I say to an extent, they were dumping all the steel in the international market, which were causing prices to plummet, which was causing American businesses. For instance, there was a uh, ore mining company in Minnesota that actually went out of business because it didn't – the steel didn't matter anymore. So I was actually working at an appliance place at this point in time, and the prices for scrap metal when I first started working there were – we could sell off scrap metal, and people would pay us for it. By the time I finished working there, after this trade dumping had happened, we had to pay people to take away the scrap metal because it was useless. And so Gosh. it was a just a 180 flip on terms of uh, economics. And so there are legitimate issues here, like you're pointing out. But I don't know. It, it, you know way to go if about you them. wanted to – I mean, again, let's stay away – I mean, I should say let's stay away from the domestic issues, but – if I was an undecided or a swing voter, I would say, oh, you know, I really like what Trump's doing with trying to impose tariffs on China for this trade violation. But as somebody that likes to understand things, I would have liked that more strongly articulated by the Trump administration in the most overt way possible. Well, stronger, strongly articulated and maybe actually focused just China and not being shot at the European Union, who has nothing yeah. to do with it. Yeah. I mean, I would say your explanation is intellectually satisfactory. And that would be something that would really aid, you know, proponents of this strategy. So strategically speaking, I would really think that if I worked for Trump, if you worked for Trump, you would probably tell, you would probably articulate that to him, I'm assuming. You know, focus your trade war, narrow it down. Um, or at the very least, you know, China's trying to take us, I think, to the WTO over this. Uh, we could have taken them to the WTO over this. It sounds like uh, essentially they were shocking the market with a surplus of steel. Um, there's a lot of other things to think about, though, which is that, you know, invariably steel you know, because it's like 100% recyclable, you will eventually plateau. But it sounds like shocking the market like that was, yeah, I, I could see that as an important impetus for him. And it was, it, it was legitimately a national security issue as well, because one of the national security priorities of the United States is to keep enough economic growth to be able to sustain, say, if you have to build up for a military, steel's essential to that. So if you're dumping all the steel in the international market, depressing prices and putting American steelmakers out of business, you're going to – that is actually a national security issue. I, I thought they just 
I thought they just dictated that as a quote-unquote national security issue so that he could make it an executive. No, that was actually that was actually a study. That was a um, a non-Trump actual study that this was a national security issue. Well, not just calling it that so that the White House can unilaterally impose it. Exactly, yeah. Well, oh, but um, okay. national security issue for the Chinese steel issue, not necessarily for Canadian steel, right? No, well, well it's, a, it's an overall issue of um, steel being lower price, but that's not being caused by Canada. That's not being caused by the European Union. So to sanction those two countries at makes – or those two countries, I'm sorry, I keep referring to the European Union as a country – to sanction those two places makes absolutely no sense because they're not the ones depressing steel prices. It's China that's depressing the steel prices. But what the, what about if there's not an international steel cartel to impose uh, a warehousing on excess steel to keep the prices up? But what, what about agriculture? Uh, okay, you're talking about steel, etc., but uh, I think European Union is a major player in terms of agricultural uh, like exports to the world market, right? And uh, I think uh, if the EU uh, gets American businesses out of out of power, you could say they are getting bankrupt, especially regarding soybean business. Then uh, it might be true that also Trump has legitimate reason to interfere in this case. Does does he not? I I don't. That's kind of see. We already the United States already has massive amounts of um again for national security reasons and national security reasons that i do agree with we subsidize far farmers and we subsidize farmers heavily in the united states because if there ever comes a point in time where the breadbasket of europe or the breadbasket of wherever you want to talk about goes dry we want to be able to have that indigenous ability to make food for ourselves so it's a national security issue but i I don't think that anyone in Europe was driving those out, especially what, since we subsidize all these farmers. There's, there's no conceivable way that, to me at least, that this was a European Union issue that they were causing. I think that Trump just didn't like that they were selling us more cars. Yeah. Um, when it comes to agricultural products, it makes sense when you look at the heavily subsidized nature of, of crops. I mean, there's a lot of issues with our farm system, but, um, for example, countries like the UK are net exporters of wheat, and um, as such, if you're buying a loaf of bread in the UK, it's like a third the price of a loaf of bread in America, where was America because of subsidies. You know, we, 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 we pay farmers not to grow um, in order to keep prices up. You know, a loaf of bread is three times as expensive in America, for better or for worse. You know, and then you could throw in some Keynesian economics like, well, you know, some things are more expensive in America that actually drives up demand for higher salaries, you know. So that's why perhaps Americans get paid more than other people. Um, but perhaps maybe with, you know, the rise in the prices of imports, then it's possible there could be an increased demand for higher salaries from workers in America right now. I say that we might not really see a recession in 2020. What's happening right now is our economy is great. Unemployment is really low. You know, the stock market is doing well, but wages are not going up. The wages have been like hitting a bit of a ceiling. So even though unemployment is down, benefits are up for the average worker, wages aren't going up. Um, and there's really not a lot of pressure, enough pressure to raise wages. 
uh, employers are not raising people's salaries. So what we're seeing is that the economy is great, but it's probably bound for a slowdown. Right now, housing prices in major cities are starting to plateau. And so perhaps maybe if we were at some very careful balance of, you know, slow, low growth, things might go well. But with the tariffs, I, I don't know, it could push us towards some sort of recession-like behavior. But right now, even without tariffs, we're bound for a slowdown because wages aren't going up. And if you could somehow pressure wages to go up, such as the average worker in America is not earning enough for this, even though unemployment is low, you know, there could be maybe increased demands for more bargaining power from workers or workers will culturally change to demand higher salaries from their employers. Well, where they're saying that would be a hopeful prospect for the future. Where the economists are see, economists economists are seeing a lot of this idea about recession is the fact that Americans aren't saving much money. So we're saving I think it's like 2% or something of our amount of money that we get and that always prefaces a uh, an actual uh, economic slowdown or a uh, recession. That's where they're getting that from. And that is the big thing is that I'm worried about it miscalculations because one of the things that markets are always incredibly touchy to is uh, stability. And so the more stable the markets, the more stable the world, the better the markets are going to be. But when things are unstable like they are right now, where everything is in flux, you have a mis even a small miscalculation and it just blows up because uh, everyone's confidence is shot. Everything, they can't rely on anything to happen. And that's when the uh, economy bottoms out. Um, I did want to kind of go back to something you were hinting at a little bit, Matthew, which is um, the subsidies that are a big part of a lot of these trade agreements. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I was at an event for a nonprofit called Global Minnesota, which is actually a really awesome organization. I just want to give them a shout out. Um, basically connecting Minnesota to the world, the world to Minnesota, all that good stuff. Um, but they had the, I believe it was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce who was discussing trade policy and how it was, you know, one of the highest priorities for the administration. Um, but one of the things that I got out of that was just how much of these trade discussions kind of gloss over issues like trade subsidies. So in some ish, some areas, like I think it was Canadian milk production, um, a lot of times they're almost selling at a loss to the U.S. markets just for, you know, because it was part of a trade discussion to get some other type of concession in a different sector of trade. And so that's why I think some of this, you know, just coming out with trade tariffs and this sort of almost negative rhetoric around trade glosses over some of these these deals that have been made almost in good faith to say, like, this one sector is going to take a little bit of a hit so these other sectors can have a much better trade deal. And so we got to subsidize this other one. And all of that, those nuances sort of get lost in this greater discussion of, well, they're just screwing us over and we need to, you know, screw them over in return. So that's why I kind of feel like it's in bad faith negotiations and it's really just not going to end well. I completely agree with that. I, I like that you bring up bad faith. I think that um, a bad faith mentality has been an issue uh, for a long time, not just in that economic realm, but even in the uh, political realm. Um, you know, it saddens me to think that that bad faith really is the modus operandi of the White House in general, um, essentially taking something that 
a lot of aspiring economists thought, such as, you know, a high tide raises all ships, and then works under the assumption that trade must be a zero-sum game, so we will impose tariffs. You know, and this doesn't come down, none of, none of the arguments of the rhetoric that Trump has given has been, we need to use these tariffs because it will make, you know, it will, it will improve prosperity for everybody. It's, we need these tariffs so I can help you by hurting that guy. And it just, it's a kind of a, it's kind of a sort of a troglodyte mentality. And it's disappointing that we have to go that route. Well, I will say that a lot of these trade tariffs aren't even implemented intelligently. For instance, in the industry I work in, um, I'm not going to say exactly what I do work in just because I there obviously I don't speak for the official company or anything like that. But <clears throat> the parts that we buy from or the parts that we can get from China are now taxed, obviously, by the government due to these tariffs. But at this, and so everyone in our company at first was thinking, oh, well, this is fantastic because we don't really buy all that much from China. We buy just a little bit, and all these other companies buy these massive things from China, the full finished products from China, and they're just putting them up in the United States. That'll help us, right? Well, no, because the way the uh, tariffs were set up, there are tariffs on unfinished goods coming in in this specific industry. But the finished goods, so the big products that these competitors are just straight up buying from China and, and putting in the United States, are not taxed at all. And it's it, so it actually affects American manufacturers more than it affects foreign manufacturers or people who buy their stuff from foreign manufacturers. So it's, it, it's just kind of a microcosm of these were not well thought through. These were not done intelligently by any measure any means and i know that you um probably can't talk too much about what you what you do what you did with steel obviously it's because you guys are making um droids but uh battle droids droids you're making you're making you're making battle mechs aren't you i well we, we started off making the battle mechs then we switched to battle droids but we think we're going clones next Okay. Well, unfortunately, there's only so much steel you can put in them. I mean, I guess you could make, like, an invincible army of, like, adamantium <laughs> bone, um, you know, immortals. Those amazing claws. But, <laughs> good God, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> okay. But in all seriousness, so, you know, as someone in your position... What are you hearing on the ground? Like, I mean, I want to hear from an actual soybean farmer. I want to hear from an actual steel worker, uh, somebody that actually is involved enough in their trade that they're actually seeing sure. the, you know, real-time implications of these activities. How is that impacting what they think of the president? I mean, we have the masses who get, like, a little bit of information and go to his rallies, and they're either excited about it you know, or there are people that don't go to his rallies and don't like him in general, and they're not excited. But what well, I was actually what are people on the ground actually reacting to? So I was actually very. Uh, we just had a sales seminar, a massive sales seminar for my company, and everyone came back and they were talking about. That's actually where the idea that the um, singular parts we buy from China are taxed, while the 
full products from China aren't taxed. One of the other things is steel, like we were saying. The price for steel now is going up and down and up and down and up and down, and there's no uh, real average to it as of right now. So when we try to build things and we try to request steel for, say, prospective jobs, a job out in 2019 uh, or 2020, or, I mean, that's a really long time away, but even a couple months away, a couple whatever, we were able to usually guarantee the price of steel before for about 30 days. And we were able to say to manufacturer, all right, what is it going to cost to build this? Okay, now we're going to factor this in. We're going to get it back to the customer, get them a real price, et cetera, et cetera. Well, with all these tariffs happening right now, our uh, steel suppliers can guarantee us the price of steel for, and I am not joking, one day, the day they quote it to us. That's it. And so it's impossible to turn around a quote or an order that quickly, get that to the customer and accurately be able to judge all that. So these people, a lot of these people, and I'm I'm living in South Dakota for anyone who doesn't know, uh, a lot of Trump supporters out here. And at the sales seminar, you heard a lot of people going, what the hell are these tariffs all about? This is, this is idiotic. This is stupid. And these are people that, for the majority, before they showed up to the sales seminar and realized what these tariffs were actually doing, probably were okay with them, more than likely. Uh, and I'd say on the average, they'd probably be more okay than they would be less okay. But after they were going, they're like, holy crap, we're getting screwed. And why didn't anyone tell us? Well, that's because our... Uh, administration or sales administration is not going to hide what's happening in the company to these salespeople. So Stephen, um, you wanted to talk a little bit about state sovereignty as it relates to trade, correct? I did. Yes. Cause, and that's, I hinted at this when I uh, started talking earlier today, one of the other aspects of free free markets and a integrated economic system is state sovereignty. So while you have capital flowing across borders, uh, which is what we usually think of as free trade, you also have systems like what you have in the European Union or you had in NAFTA where workers can actually move across borders fairly easily. And that becomes a state sovereignty issue. And that's actually one of the big reasons that a lot of people have, and I know Matt, you might have, I know you have critiques, I'm not even going to say maybe, about the free flow of capital while having a limited flow of labor. And yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's <laughs> that's the deficit I worry about. No, and that's, and that's just the thing, but it, while it's very easy, well, I don't know if we can say it's easy anymore. It used to be relatively easy to get a free flow of capital between couple states, it's incredibly politically di- difficult to get a free, free throw. I'm sorry, a free flow of people between those same borders because it, it, it just well, violates state sovereignty. Well, it, and it violates state sovereignty principles of this is my border. I get to decide who comes across this. Well, you just made an agreement well, with Mexico. Now anyone from Mexico can go up, and anyone from the United States can come down. Economically, that's that might a sovereignty. Be... Well, yeah, that's a sovereignty argument to trade too. I mean, people could say like, "You're hurting my farmers by flooding my market with cheap corn." You know, sure, you're hurting I'm, my country. I think that's a you know, and power that's issue. that's, and then you know that could get just as heated. Yeah, you know, because for some people, maybe seeing a product made in Mexico could make them just as upset as seeing Mexican immigrants because 
they think it's a threat to their economy. I mean, like, you know, just as much as they think someone's going to take their job, they think, like, someone's going to take their business, you know? When I think it's less about, in this case at least, it's, for me, I'm not thinking about just in terms of, like, the United States. I'm thinking in all these other different states. It is a little bit about economics, but it's a lot of it about having the sovereignty to stop anyone at your borders that you want and having the sovereignty to control your entire country. And that's well, very that's what a customs union up. is, you know? I mean, technically speaking, every country has the authority to say what comes in and out, not just people, but things too, you know? I mean, I gotta say, like, you know, if you're a person, you go on vacation, you come back with some, you know, fruit in your pocket, you know? The U.S. Customs will, you know, give you a fat fine if you don't declare it. So, yeah, I mean... Obviously, there's a lot more politically uh, in terms of implications for human beings, but things cause cause a ruckus, too. Sure. No, I, I definitely believe that things cause a ruckus. I, mean, I think that I just think moving a, moving a microwave across a border, though, is never going to be as controversial as the person who builds that microwave moving across the border. Because That's true. Even if it takes the jobs, I think that's kind of what Trump is saying. That I mean, a microwave no, no, come across no. the border and demand citizenship, you know, and that kind of thing. No, I know. I mean, like, of course, like uh, the like free flow of, lab, of uh, labor is uh, more serious, but still, I think uh, there could be some friction uh, if, for example, you get overly dependent on certain on certain product which is imported, and uh, it also kind of. If not violates sovereignty, it kind of violates your your freedom to actually uh, maybe maneuver in the economic scene because technically, if you have dependency on some some merchandise which comes from some country, you will be uh, a bit more complacent to do it. I think. So, are you talking about basic? Uh, one of the things that I think about when that gets brought up is like the Nord Stream project for uh, between Germany and Russia. Yes, yes, that's that's one example, definitely, yes. Okay. Yeah, you know, um, there was a time when we did believe, you know, we did functionally have a near free flow of, of, of labor. I mean, look at American history. How many Americans are descendants of people who came in from Ellis Island? Back when we, you know, it was like essentially just a flood of migration into the U.S. That was a free flow of of labor, if you would. And I think perhaps that was strongly motivated by industry wanting, you know, um, cheap labor in the urban areas of America. So in the ways that was a byproduct of, you know, trade interests too. So if well, you want a lot of cheap labor and your country's rapidly industrializing, you might you might be okay with but it. But the difference there is trade that, barons are in charge. The difference there though is that when those people were coming into Ellis Island, they were becoming American citizens. That wasn't a free flow of labor. They were changing citizenship. When you have a real free flow of labor between, say, the United States and Canada, someone can live in Montreal and work in New York, or I, I to be honest, I don't know where Montreal is. I apologize. I have horrible North American geography. But you can move across borders and not become a actual member of that other state. So you can go and work in a different country and drive home to your home country and bring all the out-of-pocket expenses or whatever you want to say back to your home country, not giving as much economic benefit to the country you work in or vice versa. And Sounds like continental Europe a bit. 
Yes, it does. And let's be honest, continental Europe is having a little bit of problems with their borders as well, because they can't decide when you actually have a large flow of migrants coming in, who's actually responsible? Is it the European Union as a whole? Well, no, 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 it's all these individual countries. And it's causing so much friction that you have. What, what, who's the guy in uh, Hungary's Oba? Oh, I can't pronounce his name. Orban. 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 Yeah, Orban. People like him rising to the front and claiming state sovereignty will basically a fascist dictatorship. That state sovereignty is over everything. The state can control your entire life. It can control whoever comes in. All other agreements are subject to will of the state, which is a very classical kind of sovereignty issue but that that's what's happening even in the european union where you do have all these open borders so that's what i'm saying it's 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 a really complicated issue because you have to sell it to your domestic constituents even if you are a you can be a dictatorship you still have to sell it to your uh, your whoever your constituents may happen to be well but these uh these deals are still entered into by these nations right so I mean, yes, it is a question of sovereignty, but it's it's not like, you know, it's not like every single nation that becomes part of these trade deals is doing so against their will. They still have to vote in favor of it. They still have to, you know, decide that they want to implement it. I mean, it is difficult when you get into organizations like the European Union where they collectively as a whole make these decisions. And so it's the implication is harder because, yeah, you could completely decide to not uh, go forward with this particular trade deal, but then you have to leave the European Union. Um, but you do still have a choice. I, I would say I'm not sure if you do have a choice in that regard, just because of what <laughs> what a Brexit will do. Um, yeah, it's not a great choice. No. I, I will admit that. But and I am just want, especially for. I don't think this is as big a problem with, and this is kind of weird. I don't think this is as big a problem with oligarchies and dictatorships because you're going to have a long-running singular mindset for whoever, however long the junta stays in power, right? In a democracy, though, you have just massive ideological flips that are available. And so you could have a socialist as president one day and a fascist who's president the next day because that's who the people elected. And in that sort of scenario, it doesn't really matter what the country agreed to before. If it is at its base opposed to what you believe in your sovereignty basically states oh i'm going to abrogate the agreements before me which is what trump did he was so ideologically opposed to success that he decided to rip it all up state sovereignty is a thing that i personally worry about a lot and that i care about a lot it much much more than most people and much more than i i, I can't speak for everyone but i'm i'm sure than some of the people on this podcast, just because I'm very much a probably what you would call a nationalist. I, I think I'm a happy nationalist, but nationalist nonetheless. Um, but when it comes to these sorts of, if you're going to, as we said in the beginning, if you are going to play a economic game in the world and you are going to play the game of capitalism, play the game of capitalism and don't, don't, try to modify and bastardize all these different rules to make it better for it's not going to ever be better for yourself this is, this I mean, is the you, game. you can have a merge you can have a merge system 
Uh, you could be domestically very socialized, like most countries in Europe, which are basically, if you would, capitalist welfare states. You know, you could have a lot of strong government intervention on the domestic level, but in the international level, you know, economically, you should be anarchical to a degree that you have free trade as much as possible as opposed to uh, protectionism. Sure. Um, but unfortunately, you know, if you really want a free system, ironically, a free trade involves a limitation on the sovereignty yes, of the countries yes. in terms of what they import and what they export. But, and this is, this is where it comes down to, it's very important to define what is freedom, you know, and what is independence and what is prosperity. Uh, and I think your argument about nationalism is great. If the premise is that, you know, letting little regimes or little countries you know, as in, as the as the top unit of reference, decide what is the best for the most people most of the time. Then that's a that's that's your assumption. But what happens if doing the best for the most people most of the time involves uh, looking beyond borders? Because there's things that become externalized on the global level, not just economics but the environment as well. So what happens if, for example? your sovereignty imposes in inferences on someone else's sovereignty. Like if I as a sovereign entity say I have every right to dump cooking oil on the river, but then it harms somebody else, then that sovereignty is becomes a zero sum game. It's like Central Asia. There's, you know, some arguments about how water gets dammed up. Yeah, water is a great example. You know, and you know, for example, you know, just water in general, the oceans, you know, looking at how, for example, we as first world residents really like to get super upset about the oceans, uh, but there's really nothing we could do unless we infringe on the sovereignty of developing countries and say, you know, your country, India, your country, China, you guys don't have the facilities to properly recycle all your trash from your industrial growth and you're polluting the world's oceans. So we have to infringe on your sovereignty and tell you, sorry, you're going to have to add some costs to your processing. I know it might slow down your industrialization, but you're going to have to start recycling. So you're going to need this infrastructure and that infrastructure, mm -hmm. you know, and how do we implement that? You know, that's another question too. But um, because of that, because of the fact that, you know, human society on the global level is evolving, we have an information age, you know, right now we're on the internet and we're transcending borders to communicate. So essentially, there's a free flow of information globally, and you could make arguments that that threatens the sovereignty of some countries. And when you start making that argument, that has more to do with the sovereignty of countries to be authoritarian, for example. Well, I think it actually, so, I, I disagree with that. I think it uh, disproportionately affects the uh, sovereignty of democratic countries. But uh, Free flow of information? I do, uh, because... Uh, anymore, we don't because. see a cutting off of the information as the, I guess, biggest threat in cyberspace. You see the overwhelming of information by these uh, hostile state actors like Russia or China, which just flood the cybersphere with fake information because they know that's going to work better than trying to shut off information. And that disproportionately hurts democracies. So basically, yeah, I mean, there's a point where, I mean, could you theorize in your own mind? Like, is there a point where state sovereignty actually infringes on the individual 
and perhaps the self-determination of someone who wants to be a global citizen. What if we wanted to reach that as a goal? Uh, can we have a global society? No. Uh, with a global world order no. that actually benefits individual <laughs> liberty or individual freedom. Like, I want to go wherever I want in the world. I want to be happy. I want to open up a business in this country. I want to live in that country. No. I want that freedom. <laughs> that is freedom. Like, what if I think that's freedom? Not necessarily, I have the freedom to do what I want as long as I stay in my little tiny country. And like, oh crap, what if my country's like just the size of Iowa and I never get to leave it? That sucks. Is that freedom? So I am a negative Nancy when it comes to that. And I will tell you right now that I believe the states are the apotheosis of the political unit as of right now. Uh, there's no as super, of right now. As of right now, there's no superseding as them, right and there now. will be no superseding them unless there is a larger threat that binds all communities. And you know what, guys? I've heard it said like five times, and I'm reading uh, like a science fiction book right now. So aliens, man, aliens. That's what's got to be. <laughs> that's pretty much the only thing that would work. The only the only way we're getting a united federation if a spot comes down here, uh, waves his magic fingers, and goes. You are now in an international or in an intergalactic community, and we're like, crap, we better get our stuff together. And even at that, do you think North Korea is going to join? Yeah, and that's that's kind of where you're where you're coming from, Stephen. Is that? Yeah, I mean, sure, maybe it would be nice to have that type of ideal society, but the only way to do it would be to have that one world government, and the only way to reach that, I can't think of a scenario where that doesn't involve just mass chaos and death on a just unimaginable oh, yeah. scale in order to get to that level. And I mean, how many people are you going to, well, how many people are you going to have to, there are fundamentally different philosophies in the United States and in China mm -hmm. as to the role of the human person. So in the United States, we are fundamentally individualists and we are fundamentally pushing towards Liberty. And it's, we try to benefit ourselves in what we do. In China, it's fundamentally about the community. It's fundamentally about what can you do for the community. It's not individualist. And so if you really want to join, you're going to have massive ideological differences. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests Stephen, Matthew, and Toms for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com like and share in our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is now available on Stitcher and iTunes, or subscribe to our RSS feed, which is hosted by Squarespace. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.